To select audio navigation, press enter now. Dobro pozdravlat na Trap One podcast. Menje zavod Mark. Menje zavod Simon. Menje zavod Jason. In English, from now on, everything in English. So, on this northern powerhouse of an episode, you can enjoy a range of northern accents for your delectation as we discuss the Blu-ray collection of season 26. But first, you gentlemen both have some uh, some cool lockdown projects that I've been following on Twitter. Jason, you just finished building the Lego Death Star with your son. I have, yeah. Um, we got it at Christmas. It was kind of like just gathering dust in the corner because we weren't really finding the time for it. Then lockdown happened and it's like, what shall we do? And so it took us about two weeks to build it. But um, yeah, we finally com- completed it yesterday. And uh, my lad's done a YouTube video um, right, reviewing the Lego Death Star and all the little features that it has. So if people want to search out Zebras Are Crazy on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to find the video. Cool, I will put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, and Simon, your series of homages to the great beards of Doctor Who uh, is very enjoyable as well. Thank you, yeah. It's kind of, um, it started off as a bit of boredom one day, and it's grown since then, and it's mainly um, just to be silly. <laughs> And it's uh, and it's amazing how many beards there are in Doctor Who. So I'm trying to do each and every one over the course of the lockdown. Cool. Are you still taking requests? Uh, yeah, I'm taking any requests that anybody has. I'm going to try and figure out a way of doing them um, because I haven't got a lot of hair on top of my head, but there's more <laughs> on the bottom. So you know, I will. Do, if people if people uh, make a request, then I'll do my best to fulfil it. Fantastic. Uh, and we've also got the season 26 Blu-ray to get us through lockdown as well. Uh, so um, I think, Simon, you're the same as me, started watching Doctor Who with the McCoy era? Certainly did. Um, yeah, he was my earliest, one of my earliest memories, full stop, was Peter Davison. But I didn't really start watching properly until McCoy. Um, and I absolutely adored him, him and Days. Um and season 26 was when I became a fan because it was, oh, it was just a fantastic season from beginning to end. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I was the same. I started with, with season 25 and I went away and found some Target books and things like that. And then, um, yeah, season 26 came on. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. For me, four just absolutely fantastic stories. Uh, what are your memories of this one, Jason? Well, uh, yeah, I'm just going to show my age now because I obviously I started watching during the the Hinchcliffe era of Tom Baker. So, um, and I was a big Doctor Who fan like, as a kid, um, even though Star Wars came along and took away a little bit of my uh, interest uh, in it. But always watched the show, loved it when it changed over to Peter Davison. And then I hit my teenage years and you kind of like, as you do, you discover other things. I discovered music, records, girls kind of thing. And I always watched the show, but I kind of like fell out of love with it. And it was season 25 that actually brought me back as a fan. Um, I'd watched season 24. I thought McCoy was all right. I thought the show was a little bit too jokey, though. But after that cliffhanger, episode one of Remembrance of the Daleks, Mm. I 
got hooked again. And I remember the very next day um, going into school and basically saying, did you watch Doctor Who last night? It was back last night. The Daleks were in it. It was fantastic. And basically getting a load of strange looks <laughs> from all my friends and everybody in the class going, what on earth are you watching that kiddie program for still? Um, so I kind of like then became like on the fringe of like not mentioning it to anybody after that. But absolutely loved it. The season 25 and especially season 26, I think, were real like kind of like a renaissance for the show. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little bit of a shame that it was kind of like cut short when it was really starting to hit its stride again. Definitely. Yeah, I was I was nine when this went out, so probably peak age for getting hooked on Doctor Who, so it came at just the right time for me. Um, and uh, I think because I'd read a few Target books as well, so things like uh, when the Brigadier turns up, I, I already had an idea who that was and the significance of it, which was really exciting. Um, I remember really wanting to see the TARDIS interior, because um, you only get a, a, a little bit in the greatest show, and then probably an even tinier bit here in Battlefield. Um, and then with survival as well, um, I kind of guessed it was the master from the uh, cliffhanger to episode one, for just having read his description in uh, probably by Terence Stick so many times in, uh, in some of the Pertwee books. Uh, so uh, yeah, this um, d- d- I think tying all that stuff together just really, really got me hooked on it. Um, but as you say, just um, sadly right at the end, uh, and uh, I was left with just the target books for years later. Yeah, it does feel like it was cut off in its prime almost because it just, it, it was like this era was just hitting its stride. It was confident, sure, you know, like, I mean, it's always had a tight budget, but look what it did with it, though. The imagination, and Doctor Who isn't Doctor Who unless it's uh, overreaching itself, but it was, um, it, it was to, to, to me, this season is swaggering. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic, breaking new ground. Yeah, and I think credit to John Nathan Turner because, um, you know, he was kind of like, he really did fight to keep the show on the air. And he, one thing that he was really good with, because I think he started off as a production manager, so he was always kind of like very knowledgeable about how to like make the most out of budgets, is that certainly in 25 and 26, he really just rings out every single penny, doesn't he? And, and you know, he was very, very savvy with how they did the location filming for uh, Curse of Fenric, that where they filmed it all on location. So mm-hmm. then they could do all the uh, all the ghost light was then all studio bound. So I mean, the guy was really, really clever with um, you know just how to get as much bang for buck onto the screen. Definitely. As they're saying um, in the Blu-ray box set, um, can you imagine in, him in charge of Strictly? How amazing that would be! He'd be in his element, wouldn't he? He absolutely would. All, all that glam and glitter, but he, he really, really was. I mean, he he uh, he was really good at what he did, as you say. You know, stretching the budget and trying to trying to get more bang for it for the book. And you know, look at the guest stars. I mean. Angela Douglas, she's great. She's been in carry-ons. Everybody knows who she is. Jean Marsh. Um, you know, it's... it's um, And um, who's the guy who was Anseling? Because he was in Trainer, which was a, a big series at the time, wasn't it? Oh, what is his name? I'll have to look it up. Uh, but, yeah, you know, he was, like, yeah. getting well-known faces in it. I mean, how yeah. marvellous is that? It's quite nice the way he gets, um, like, Nicholas Parsons as well 
yeah. um, you know, I didn't realise that, you know, to watch the new behind the scenes Curse of Fenric documentary, you know, had done serious drama early on in his career. I obviously really relished the chance to be able to do that again. Um, and like uh, Linda Bellingham in Trial of the Time Lord, I remember her um, Toby Haydock's Who's Round interview where she said, you know, she got pigeonholed um, after kind of doing the, the Bisto adverts and comedies that she wasn't really offered any dramatic roles again, but I really, really appreciated that. So it's nice that he also gave um, people like that the chance to to flex those muscles and uh, and have another go at it. Yeah, I mean, and look at the cast of uh, Ghostlight as well. You've got, you know, uh, movie British movie legend Sylvia Sims in there and, mm-hmm. and Ian Hogg, who was... I had his own hit show on the BBC at the time in, was it Rockliffe's Babies, it was called? Yeah, um, it was a police that. drama. Um, so, you know, some, and Frank Windsor as well, you know, star of Zepcars, you know. So one thing that JNT was really, really always good at was getting great guest stars to, you know, obviously give it extra publicity for when uh, the show was broadcast. Yeah, it would have been a whole season of, where have I seen him before? Yeah. Where have I seen her before? Really familiar faces. Yeah. Like now, like they did shortly after this with The Bill or they did with Casualty or Holby City now. Faces that you know, you know, um, in those it's like who's the, it'll be who's going to get killed off first, but in this it will be who's the alien or who's the baddie. I mean, it's, uh, it's smashing casting. It's the days before AMDB as well, so it would have been driving people mad, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even I think he went on record, didn't he, as saying that, and a, a lot of fans criticised him for this, but he didn't mean it in the way that he was saying it, uh, that it was taken, is that he said Doctor Who was like the Morecambe and Wise show. It's a show that every actor wants to do at least once to say that they've been on the show. Mm. So he wasn't yeah. making that analogy that it was a light entertainment comedy show he was basically saying that it's something that all actors want to do they want to do a Doctor Who it's a prestige isn't it you know yeah, it's, uh, yeah. and it continues to this day with the the, the names that they, they still attract uh, you know, people like uh, Alan Cummings and that They're big names internationally aren't they yeah yeah it's um, this is it I mean Richard Curtis in the uh, wrote an episode in um, mm-hmm. In the Matt Smith era, Neil Gaiman, and you know, and uh, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's it'll be usually quite hard to get these people. And wasn't Peter Jackson in talks at one point? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Madness, um, mad stuff. That I think I can't remember the, his name. The guy that di- directed um, Vic Capaldi's first two stories. Um, ah, it's on tip of my tongue. Ben Wheatley, is it? Yeah, Ben Wheatley. Yeah, um, he's yeah, a famous director, isn't he? Yeah, that was a that was kind of a big get for them as well. Yeah. Uh, so while we're on J and T, should we uh, should we talk about the 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 showman, the, the documentary about him? I thought was oh, excellent, yeah. a real highlight. I think I, I am not ashamed to say I want I really wanted to cry over this documentary. It was just it's it's just heartrending the whole thing. Mm. Honestly, it's, it was so beautifully made and so beautifully put together. And with real affection, but by the end of it, I was I was a mess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is really touching towards the end, and certainly kind of like you feel like a real lost opportunity that he had. You know, he was very much maligned, certainly in Doctor Who circles, um, 
you know, in those like mid to late 80s period and certainly into the 90s, I remember reading fanzines that just absolutely slated him for even like consulting on stuff like the video releases mm. saying like, you know, why is he still getting involved? But he was kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place, wasn't he? He kind of pigeonholed himself as the Doctor Who man, even though he wanted to do so much more and you do get a sense that um, it really was like a tragedy that he wasn't able to break out of the show's grasp in a way. So certainly when the show finished airing in 1989. Yeah, I think um, it's a it's a really nice companion piece to Richard Martin's book as well, which I only read last year. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that struck me reading the book and watching this is that he was only 32 when he got the job. Um which seems, yeah, kind of shocking to me now. And then, and then only in his early fifties, when um, when he sadly passed away as well. I think when you're a kid, you don't you don't get that sense, do you, that that, that of how you know this is somebody quite young and, and what should have been early on in their career, but but ended up being the be all and end all of his career, and and you know sadly, uh, you know, made him unhappy towards the end. I guess very unhappy. There's a deep unfairness. I I. I feel towards that because he could have done so much more, but he was just lumbered with this, with the, with the, uh, what seems to be the culture and in the BBC at the time. And, you know, and in, he just, he could have done so much more because he was obviously, as you've mentioned, brilliant with, with the pennies and he had a real eye for the, for the pizzazz and for publicity. And that must be, more uh, uh, more of a complex machine than people give it credit for. So if he had all these talents, and it's just and because he was associated with Dot which was largely unloved except for those of us who were rice at the time, um, <laughs> which wasn't proved way until two thousand and five, then you know he, he would have he perhaps would have gone on to bigger and greater things. I, it's, to me, it's a tragedy. I, I honestly, it, that's what makes me really upset about the whole thing. Poor guy. Yeah, and I don't think fans, certainly at the time, didn't appreciate him at all because, you know, when you look at how much the show really wasn't loved uh, within BBC circles and upper management at the time, and it was kind of like almost as if when they tried to cancel it in 1985, as if the BBC had said, like, well, I'll tell you what, we'll keep it on just because we don't want this ultra-loud group of fans moaning to the tabloids and creating bad rapport for the BBC that we'll just keep it on and we'll just schedule it somewhere where a few people will watch it and then what we can do is quietly take it off a couple of years later and, and that sadly is, is what happened like once JNT had his um, I think he was the last studio producer on contract for the BBC before it all went to like independent in 1990 and then one, once he went, then unfortunately, yeah, you know, the BBC just quietly like kind of like rushed Doctor Who under the carpet and forgot about it. Yeah, um, I remember at the time because uh, by the end of season twenty six, I was an ardent fan. It had just totally grabbed my attention. Utterly loved it, and I've been that level of a fan ever since. <laughs> I was about ten or eleven. And I remember writing to the BBC constantly saying, when's it coming back? When's it coming <laughs> back? And the tone of the letters starts from, well, thank you for your interest. It's just having a rest to, the, uh, this, if you read between the lines, exasperation with, thank you once again for your further comments. 
<laughs> they must have got sick of hearing about it in the end. Yeah. I, I think we all wrote it uh, back in the day. I think I remember. I think I've still got the letter somewhere uh, where uh, I think one of the fanzines organised a big like letter writing campaign, and I think I got a reply back from BBC Enterprises who basically said that we're just resting the show at the moment. We don't want it, and I think this quote is well known because they put it on every press release at the time. We don't want it languishing in the backwater of audience appreciation. We want it to come back as a more vibrant, successful show. So when it comes back, it'll come back and basically like stop writing to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, it also it's the the whole thing we you know tied up with with, with it being rested and with. Uh, JMT not going on to uh, greater things than that sadly being the end of his utmost of his high profile career also what could have been since we've got these tantalising glimpses of what could have been it's um, it's it's just it's I, I, it still makes me feel fearful when, when yeah. I think about it even though it's been years since he's come back and has been on TV for what the last 15 or so years so yeah it's um, yeah. I would I would love to have seen what what they had planned for for the end of Sylvester McCoy's era. Who would have replaced him? The next companion, how Ace was written out. And, yeah, yeah that would have been you, nice. you hear these sort of things like the um, I think they sort of uh, they had an idea for the first episode of season twenty seven where it opened with Ace as the, the captain of a starship on a bridge, um, kind of firing off a few orders and then going into a ready room. Uh, which I guess it's very much inspired by the next generation, which was around by then, wasn't it? <laughs> and then the Doctor and the TARDIS would be in the ready room and she would say, this isn't going to work, Professor, or something like that. And then there's all the stuff about uh, Ace being enrolled with the Time Lords and uh, the new companion being a, a safe cracker that uh, breaks open a safe and finds Sylvester McCoy sitting inside it or something. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, really cool I'm, stuff that, that would be great to see. Aren't they lovely visuals, though? yeah. They oh, finished it, uh, the series of the Lost Stories, didn't they, of season 27, uh, which I've got on my shelf behind me at the moment. Um, but like you say, you know, if if the BBC or Big Finish ever like run out of things to animate because they're working through the missing stories a, a, a lot more quicker than what mm. they were previously, then perhaps they could animate the, um, the season 27 Lost Story audios and then put them out as a box set. That would be quite good. Oh, I would love that. Shut up and take my money, I think, is the phrase. Because yeah. <laughs> they were going to bring back the Ice Warriors, weren't they, in one of the stories? Yeah. Oh, McCoy and the Ice Warriors on screen, how fantastic. Yeah, that would have been great, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, because I think he was planning to, to just do one more season, wasn't he? But maybe he could have been persuaded to do a bit more. It's, uh... Yeah, um, yeah, because I think Sophie Aldred had a a contract for eight episodes and mm. obviously um, Sylvester had the full 14 episodes contract and then um, I believe obviously when they weren't going ahead with it they were just effectively like paid off yeah for, um, you know which obviously get paid for doing nothing is great but yeah. you know when <laughs> it's something that you love and enjoy there's got to be some kind of bitterness there that you you're not actually getting to film the show again mm. yeah yeah, it must because when you don't get any sense of closure when something like that happens, do you? Yeah, yeah um, um, the first um, signing I ever went to was in January 1990. Um, 
there was a comic book shop in Manchester that did um, a signing with Sylvester McCoy and David Banks, the cyber leader who were appearing in a panto. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember actually asking Sylvester McCoy, um, saying, oh, you know, really enjoyed like the last series, um, any news on when it's coming back and stuff. And Sylvester basically told me, he's like, no, um, it's, <laughs> sorry, the toilet cleaners at the BBC know more than what I do. Oh, <laughs> you get a real sense of the hierarchy at the yeah. time, don't you? Possibly now. Um, yeah, I just remember in the nineties when uh, stuff like Bugs came on and the Crime Traveller, and yeah. you just go, yeah. "Why are you making this? Why are you making yeah. Doctor Who?" <laughs> yeah, and and there was a program as well called Uncle Jack with Paul Jones on, and it was basically Doctor Who by any other name with Fenella Fielding as this gloriously camp baddie. And I just thought, and it had the effects that Doctor Who had, and I just thought, why are you making this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> What's the point? Yeah, just seemed like a slap in the face, didn't it? <laughs> just a little. Uh, so some of the other features on here, we've got the uh, the new interview, Sophie Aldred, uh, Matthew Sweet, uh, part of his series uh, of interviews, which... I think these are one of the, the high points of the sets for me. I feel like he, he gets a lot of interesting material out of people who've already been interviewed hundreds of times about the Doctor Who work on convention panels and DVD behind-the-scenes extras. Um, but you, you still get new anecdotes and things, or new to me anyway. And Sophie Aldred's brilliant. She's so enthusiastic and probably one of the youngest people that, that worked on the classic series that's still around. So she's got a great memory for everything as well. So all the stuff about how she was cast and her first days on set and uh, just how unused she was to be in a TV studio. Some, some really nice anecdotes there, I thought. This is, the, this is one of the great boons of the uh, Blu-ray range, I think, is, mm. is having Matthew Sweet on board because he is so good. I listened to his Radio 3 programme on Sounds of the Cinema and, um, and, he's, and he, he's a really, really thoughtful interviewer and... Uh, when I when I clicked on to uh, the Sophie Aldred in conversation uh, feature, and I and I thought, and at the back of my mind, I was thinking it'll probably be stories I've all heard. Be- I've, I've heard millions of times before, but I'm still going to watch it because I'm a fan. Um, and it was stuff I'd never heard. All mm. you know, like all the stuff about what she was doing beforehand, about her university days, her college days, what she was getting up to. Um, you know how nice. Um, uh, the Edward Peel, the the guy who played Kane, was on her first day on set, and you know, and and what she's what she's done afterwards as well. It, it was just, it was like a whole new slant on a very old subject. It was it was marvelous, really good feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very good at prizing kind of like new anecdotes out of the interviewers. I think he's done it on every single one um, so far, even Tom Baker one from season 12 where you've, you've probably heard all the Tom Baker stories time after time after time again but he was still trying to he was still getting new information out. I didn't know that Sophie Aldred went to University of Manchester and I yeah. had no idea that she was in the same class, uh, drama class as Tim Booth from the lead singer of James it's like wow that's a brilliant little uh, fact yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's all these little human touches, isn't it, that makes more rounded people rather than 
um, rather than oh, that's such and such. They were in Doctor Who rather than a fact, if you see what I mean. You know. Yeah, and it was really touching when um, they were talking about how she didn't get on with John Nathan Turner initially, mm, and yeah. that um, apparently they were got walking home one night from filming or 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 being out or, or, or the convention or something, and apparently he he kind of like dissed her and not said goodbye to her and said goodbye to the other person. And Matthew Sweet's very good at kind of like getting the the emotion out and say, well, how did that make you feel? And she mm. said, well, yeah, I went home and cried to my boyfriend because I thought I was doing something wrong and I thought the producer didn't like me. And it was just like down to a, it, you know, later on they find out it was just down to a bit of a simple misunderstanding and then they became like great friends. Yeah, they bonded later on a pub night, didn't they? There yeah, was, um, playing Skittles, wasn't Skittle. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, it's like these little mo- these moments of uh, little triumph, and you get a real sense of what the um, working life and the atmosphere was like uh, during during day to day, you know. And 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 that's the that's the level of detail that um, is I, I find really really interesting uh, above and beyond the stuff that we already know, you know, like the 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 uh, macro level context that we all know about, yeah. but getting to getting to know the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day life of making something that we all know so well and watch zillions of times, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, and and that new footage that, that um, forms part of the Curse of Fenric documentary that, that's new to this set as well, where she's doing the dive into the water off, the, um, off Maiden's Point. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and it's like, even though you obviously know it's going to be okay, it's quite tense watching it. It's, uh, the, 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 that really wouldn't happen nowadays, would it? No. <laughs> well, yeah, she yeah. says as much, doesn't she? She said it just wouldn't happen now. So, and it's like the accident with Battlefield, isn't it, with the water tank? Yeah. That yeah. wouldn't have been done in a uh, studio. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, it absolutely beggars belief what, what used to go on, and it's not all that long ago. It's you know, I know it's quite some time ago in one sense, but it's not really all that long ago, um, you know, comparatively. And it's uh, and it, yeah, it's, it's it's a wonder nothing really serious actually did happen, and it's only by a hair's breadth that it didn't. No, absolutely. Um... So that yeah, the Fenric documentary I loved as well. I would say Curse of Fenric is is most days probably my favourite Doctor Who story of all time. So I was delighted that that was the one that got the brand new documentary, um, and where they getting the, the cast back together to revisit the locations, and then for Nicholas Parsons to be there as well, which must have been one of the last things that he recorded potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, uh, ironic. I was watching that literally on the afternoon when it was announced he'd sadly passed away, and it was like it was really like you know quite poignant to like see him there. Uh, you know, speaking so fondly of like being in Doctor Who because, like you say, he was really re- renowned then as a light entertainment game show host, even though he started off as a serious actor early in his career. Yeah. yeah, I watched it that, that evening, weirdly, and it was, uh, I kind of scheduled to watch it that evening anyway, and it was on the train coming back from university, and I, uh, and I saw online that it died, and I thought, oh my God, and so it was, it, it did seem more poignant that, you know, watching watching him in, in the documentary speak so fondly about it, and being so 
so damn nice. He just comes across as lovely, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, curse of Benrick is is my equal favourite with Ghostlight um, of mm. all time, and it's never going to change. It's it's um, I think it's just one of the most wonderful Doctor Who stories. It's an absolutely fantastic story, you know? Yeah, it's brilliant. Should we pause there for two minutes for the clap? Sure. Oh, is it that time already? And reconvene. Uh, yeah, I think it's like one yeah. minute too. So, um, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. From one doctor, on behalf of every doctor, nurse, carer and frontline worker, please remember these important rules. Stay at home. Only go outside for food, health reasons or work. If your work definitely can't be done from home. Stay two metres, six feet away from other people. Wash your hands. Anyone can spread the virus. Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. You've got this. More people than last week. Yes, fireworks going off here as well. Oh, yeah, we had that the first week, yeah. Uh, I can see two streets from my house, and one street wasn't doing it, but the other street was, so it was really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Our dog just does not know what to make of that. Every week he sort of comes and sits on the doorstep with us, and he looks around at all the neighbours clapping and others clapping, and he's like, what's going on? (laughs) Weird human thing. Yeah. It's always great to see the locations as well, isn't it? A little, all these years later, uh, see how much have changed and uh, get the cast back there to jog the memories. So, um, Sophie Aldred has a much better memory than Sylvester McCoy, I think, for these things, doesn't she? Oh, she really does. He, I think he relies on her now, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> you, you get a real sense of their, of their friendship, don't you? Mm. And well, they share the same birthday, don't they? So I think that's why they instantly bonded. Right. Yeah, it's it's like on-string chemistry that they that they had and they've had ever since, and and it's it, it's really nice to see and really nice to know that they that they have that kind of friendship in real life as well. It's just, I find that particularly heartwarming. It's absolutely great, but it is lovely. It is amazing to see it all these years later and to see what's changed and and what hasn't. But you know, it's like England being England, like. They use lots of old buildings which haven't changed in hundreds of years and probably won't for another few hundred years as well. So it still looks the same in some respects. It's so nice that they they retained a friendship with uh, the actor that plays Sorin as well. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, that's nice. And if you've read Sophie Aldred's book, um, At Childhood's End, uh, but in that, um, Ace has a cat called Sorin. Oh, so it's like really? Uh, it's like she's peppered in those bits that have um, stayed with her in her personal life as well. Well, I remember uh, the uh, novelisation, the target novelisation, The Curse of Fenric, uh, has a little epilogue at the end where Ace is back in time and actually um, married to one of Sorin's ancestors. Yeah, that was a cracking book. That was a brilliant book, that. Yeah, it was at the time when the Target novels were really, like, coming into their own. They weren't just, like, 120 pages of, like, basically the scripts written down with a few extra descriptions. They were mm. proper, like, allowing the authors to really expand on the stories. 
Yeah, the the battlefield and and remembrance of the Dalek ones are particularly good as well. They always stick in my mind. It was um, the the books that around this time were. Um, I think it was partially what got me into from the transition from childhood into adult reading. Mm. And that's what got me into the new adventures immediately afterwards. And because it had Doctor Who on the cover, my, my parents didn't think twice about it. But the things that yeah. put in new adventures were quite <laughs> a little bit more adult than on screen. <laughs> Especially the first one, Genesis, was uh, quite... Oh, my word. Places, yeah. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I remember reading it and like, looking at the cover and then looking at mum and dad and thinking, they've no idea I'm reading this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, I learnt, learnt a lot from those books at <laughs> an impressionable age. All, all history, all about Mesopotamia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the on the Blu-ray, I'm really glad to see they did the prosthetics featurette that was part of... Um, um, oh, no, sorry. Uh, there, there was something on a... There was a programme at the time called Take Two, and they did um, about... Um, about some of the special effects on Doctor Who, and I remember seeing that. I remember watching that when it was broadcast, and I'd completely forgotten about it. And um, so to see it pop up on the on the Blu-ray was absolutely amazing. Because as soon as I clicked on it, and it came up, and I thought, "Oh, I've seen this!" So you know, and that that's the beauty of a Blu-ray release is that it's if this is whatever era they're representing, it feels really comprehensive because it's got a bit of context around it as well. So not just the programme, the programme in other contexts and what's, what was happening at the time. I just think that's really well done. Yeah, it's so... Because these, the, these are the only ones I actually saw on broadcast, it's really evocative, that, isn't it? And the continuity trails and, um, and trailers and all that kind of stuff as well. Because um, they, they, the McCoy theme tune, although it's kind of one of the like least popular ones, it's the one that really makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because it reminds me of that childhood excitement of a, of a new episode every week. Um, so, in, in a yeah. way that the other ones don't. I like them, but but I don't get that kind of uh, yeah that kind of thrill from it. It's where your heart skips a beat, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and and I think part of the reason why I just completely love these stories um you know beyond any kind of rationalization uh you know even like the silver nemesis and the, some of the most hated stories you can't recreate that feeling of watching it as an eight nine year old um seeing the cybermen for the first time and just the uh just the verve and energy of these stories the the confidence and i think you said before like the swagger that that, that they're told with is uh it really grips you there's a real pace to the storytelling isn't there that sometimes you don't really get in Doctor Who stories because sometimes when they're certainly when like you look at some of the older stories when they're like six parters or they're even four parters sometimes there's a bit of a lull always in like the middle but I mean Curse of Fenwick's the best example I mean I remember at the time there was a lot of rumours saying that potentially it could have got fifth uh, episode to be broadcast mm. because they had that much footage uh, and then it was one of the it was the first release then to get like an extended edition uh, yeah. I think uh, the year later on VHS 
uh, and I think they put 12 minutes extra footage into the various episodes mm. and that's I'm glad that's actually um, on one of the discs represented as, along with the special edition that they did for DVD yeah the special edition's fantastic as well isn't it um, I'm finding my memory of all these now there's so many versions of some stories I'm finding my it's almost like my memories are being rewritten and now I'm yeah. not sure what I remember. I remember watching it, but now I'm not sure what I remember of the content of the original one. So to have them side by side is great to, mm. because there's bits that were put in later for, for later releases and eventually mm. this one as well and uh, rescored, reordered and, and what have you um, that I was so sure that was on the original broadcast but weren't. So now I think I've watched, I've watched, we've obviously all watched it on the later releases a hell of a lot more because the original broadcast was only once. But now it's my my memory is hazy about what I actually did see or what I didn't see on that on that uh, first occasion. Yeah, I'm, I've watched the um, the VHS version over and over again um, in in the way that you can when you're a kid. Just just keep watching stuff without getting sick of it. Um, so that's the one that's kind of really set in my mind, the one that's got the little bit of extra footage. Um, but then we watched the special edition DVD one. So those moments are really, really stand out and they're slightly jarring. It's um, it's like the, when they did the uh, remastered Star Wars, isn't it? Um, in like yeah. the late yeah. 90s. Um, and I'd watched it again over and over again on VHS as a kid. Um, and I go and see those and there's the bit where they've put um, Jabba the Hutt um, and the um, the bit where Luke bumps into his old mate uh, before the before they go off to the battle and things. Um, no things, yeah, yeah, and it's so weird um, just having these suddenly having those new bits in there. Um, but I, I thought the I thought the Blu-ray special effects and uh, were quite um, and, and the VHS special effects were quite sympathetic towards um, to, to towards the uh, original material um because there have been um dvd releases um planet of fire um that has <laughs> really over egged it and and then they say oh yeah we've got all new and it's just it's just rubbish and you, and another example that unfortunately springs to mind is the cgi um ships in um sailing ships in in enlightenment and you can't beat the original models because they're mm, just yeah, right. gorgeous and so I thought what they've done here is is really nicely sympathetic, and it's just in, improved upon it, but in a in a in a complimentary way rather than, as you say, a really jarring way that kind of pings you out of this out of the story. Yeah, because stuff like that does age, doesn't it? Um, yeah. What was cutting edge CGI or, or cutting edge? I guess what they could afford for the Doctor Who DVDs ten fifteen <laughs> years ago is is totally different to what can be achieved now. Yeah, yeah. So quite often you're better off with the original source, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we've got a whole new series of Behind the Sofa. Yes, I, I know it's a kind of a marmite thing, but I quite like Behind the Sofa. Oh, yeah, um, I, love I thought them, yeah. I thought they've kind of like perfected it for for this one because I've seen some of the earlier ones, but for this one, they, it seems that little bit more slick. I don't know what others think. Oh, I love these features. The, 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 the first bit, I was really doubtful at first when I read the description of what it would be like because I kind of like thinking, what? And then obviously when 
the season 12 box set was the first one that came out. I was really, really surprised how much I enjoyed them. And I like how they've kind of like expanded as they've gone on. So they've gone from like just having two sofas of people and now we're getting three sofas of people and we're getting people involved with the new series, commenting on like the series that they watched as they were a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Pete Matique obviously is a great like contributor uh, on this box set. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I get, I get that some fans could see them as a Marmite special feature, but essentially it's goggle box for Doctor Who, and I'm yeah. really loving it. Yeah, I love it. It as is. Well. It is. Yeah. Um, it's like I thought Pete Matique was was a was a, a a great addition, and the person that the paired him with didn't know as much, so he was explaining who was it that paired him with. I can't remember. Oh, it's one of the female writers from Series 11, and uh, her name escapes me at the moment. <laughs> yeah, did she do The Witchfinders? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, her name's on the absolute tip of my tongue. But, um, you know, that pairing was where he he knows, he knows he's got, like, kind of geek-level knowledge, and, and hers isn't quite as quite uh, as knowledgeable but he's still super interested so it's really nice that they did that where he's explaining to her and then you have past companions and the TARDIS team and the cut, cutting between all of them and it's just got that added bit of depth that um, previous behind uh, behind the sofas haven't had it was um, it, yeah. is, it was more slick this time and the, ed- the editing was a lot better I thought yeah. Joy Wilkinson that's nice yeah, I think that there's something nice about that seeing it anew through somebody else's eyes as well, isn't there? Somebody who's who's interested in it, um, but doesn't know it as well as us. It's it's like um, the the wife in space, you know, Neil Perriman's blog about um, getting his wife to watch all of Classic Who and writing the blog about it. And yeah, there's, yeah. there's something really enjoyable about seeing somebody uh, see this stuff for the first time in a, in a way that you can't because you you, you already know it so well. That was a great blog, Life in Space. It was so funny. Yeah. And it's always amusing how Sarah Sutton just can't understand what's going on in any story whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, of course, Janet Fielding, absolutely brilliant. You don't yeah. want her along any time on you. Yeah, and even, and even that's great, isn't it? Getting different eras' companions together. Because um, you do get the sense that they all know each other from conventions and, and various things, but seeing them interact is is lovely. So um, when you had it with um, uh, who was she with? It was oh, uh, this when, one. Was it Wendy Padbury when they just had that really um, really kind of fun relationship where they just took the Mickey out of each other all the time? It was Wendy Padbury, I think, wasn't it? Not on this one. No, uh, I think so. on this one it's a uh, now. Uh, Wills, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wendy Padbury's on the. Is she on the Tom, uh, the Colin Baker one or the season nineteen one? Oh, I thought it was maybe season ten. I can't, I can't remember them now. Um, oh, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, um, the, the that that pairing of um, of Janet Fielding and Wendy Padbury was uh, was amazing. They just constantly taking yeah, because they, they really thing. ribbed each other. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely like <laughs> to see them on together again. And you're right. You're right about Sarah Sutton, because that's the, it's the. There's always somebody that you know who you can watch TV with, and and, and they're watching it with you, and they say, "Why is she saying that? What's he doing there? Yeah. <laughs> like, What's happening now?" Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I find um, Sylvester McCoy is he's kind of a lot quieter, maybe more introspective than he was um, a few years ago. I've seen, even seen a difference at, at, at conventions where you know a few years ago he'd be up on his feet a lot and running around the audience with the microphone. Um, I mean, obviously, he's, as, as they all are, they're getting a little bit older now. But in in the behind the sofa and on the documentaries, a bit, a bit quieter and more thoughtful, isn't he? he? He does come across as more thoughtful than he used to be. It's, uh, I met him uh, about four years ago now, and uh, and I thought he's he's uh, and he was joking and he was lovely and he was very approachable. Um, but I, I think I thought, yeah, he's quieter and smaller than I thought he would be. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you never know what people are going to be like until you meet them, do you? Really? Yeah, I think yeah. conventions. I, mean, I think we've all had experiences, haven't we? Of like, you know, we've always met somebody who's not quite lived up to your expectations. Yeah, mm. but it's um, I, <laughs> I, all I could think of was you're my doctor, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and I couldn't say anything else or think anything else. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's. Um, but I, I think the, this is the, the wonderful thing about his relationship with Sophie as well is that they know each other so well and for so long now that they can translate for each other and mm-hmm. they bat off each other so well. Um, and, and and that comes across really, really well on screen. And it's even after all these years, it's just fantastic. I mean, can you imagine being doing a job for a couple of years and people still talking about it? Like thirty years later, it's just it's mind-boggling. Yeah, there's so few jobs like that um, in in TV, aren't there? I guess that 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 have that level of uh, um, of, of life-altering potential, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, that, that stay with you like that. And I think as fans, we don't kind of like really appreciate the fact that a lot of actors don't even watch their own work, do they? They turn up. They do the job, they film it all out of order, and then they go on to the next job, and then they're confronted with a fan who, like, 25 years later, asks them yeah. a, a question about the story, and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the old adage is, I don't know, darling, I've just tried not to bump into the monsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this this as you said before, this is why Sophie Alger's so great. She's got amazing recall for it, hasn't she? And I guess it's her first big TV job. It, it would make more of a an impact on you than somebody that's worked in the industry for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one of the great things about this Blu-ray release, speaking of um, of things at the time, was uh, seeing a bit of the uh, BSB's Who Weekend because we didn't have satellite at the time. Oh, and yeah. and it was uh, I think BSB was pulled halfway through the weekend, wasn't it, or something like that? Um, I'm not sure. I think if I remember rightly, they they did the weekend and then they started. They promised Doctor Who from the beginning, and then they got up to about I think something like the Aztecs a couple of weeks later, and then Sky bought them out and <laughs> they then shut down and stopped broadcasting. <laughs> That's just I think. That's like. Adding, adding salt to the wound, yeah. really, isn't it? 
because I remember there was a huge criticism when they announced that like BSB weekend and say that oh, we're showing Doctor Who that's never been seen before. And basically, uh, I think they selected every story that had already just been released on VHS. Mm-hmm. So a lot of fans were kind of like going, what, I've just bought this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't have Sky, but my auntie did. So I remember just trying to gather as many blank video cassettes together as I could to give her. Um, that she would just keep recording it and replacing them, uh, get as much of it uh, as she could for me. And then they were on UK Gold, weren't they, once, uh, once yeah. Sky took over? Yeah. So she'd record the omnibus on a Sunday morning for me every week. Um, I used to like watching them at, like, they used to show them, I think, at 10 o'clock at, every night. Um, and then they'd show a, a, a 1970s Top of the Pop straight after it. And then obviously they'd show the omnibus on the uh, Sundays as well. Yeah. Well, that was, they, they were great, the uh, UK gold repeats. Yeah, yeah they were. Yeah. I, I, had, yeah. uh, I had most of them on there, and then I gradually bought the VHSs. Uh, and then, obviously, I replaced them all with DVDs, and now I'm replacing them again with <laughs> <laughs> Blu-rays. The only saving grace is each time they take up less space. Yeah, uh, and as, um, you know, as Simon said, you know, they're adding more features and, yeah. you know, they're even putting stuff on that wasn't on the DVD releases. You know, um, you said that Ghost Lights, your joint favourite story, and it's probably my favourite McCoy one. And I'm absolutely, like, I was blown over by the fact that they put a work print on, you know, the Ghost oh. Lights, this story, that three episodes was always, like, deemed as, like, too complicated and we filmed so much extra and it's been lost and it's only available on, on ropey VHS and the guys who do these box sets, they, they put a, a great job of actually editing that stuff back into a an, another version of Ghostlight, which when I watched it, I was completely uh, amazed at like how much extra information it threw in there. Mm. Oh, I was gobsmacked and it's just like... Um on that, that I have to, I completely agree with every word you've said. It allows the story to breathe. Yeah. Even just the little reactions. There was one point where I was jubilant, and it just seems like a, like a little bit, where it's, um, Mrs. Pritchard and somebody says something, and she gives it, gives him the most evil look. And that was on a, on the work print bit, and it was just a few seconds, and I just thought, and it's that... And that's when I realised that that's what makes a great programme brilliant is giving that extra few moments to show a bit of character like that. And um, I, it was, I, I watched that twice through. I, I was just so over the over the moon with it. I blooming love Ghostlight, and it was, it just, it feels like it feels like a text that you know so well and all of a sudden you learn, oh, there's extra scenes to it. And yeah. it's just, and it lends it all in a whole new light. Absolutely fantastic. The labour of love that's gone into this, it's, it can only be applauded. Yeah, full marks from the uh, Blu-ray team for really like doing that because it was long rumoured that the footage was lost, wasn't it? And yeah. I think it was only when John Nathan Turner like passed away and I think Ghostlight had already been released at this stage on DVD that they actually said that the amount of material that John Nathan Turner like kept for himself because he knew that the BBC would just wipe it, mm-hmm. and like I said, there were, he had realms of videotape that just had like unused tapes and extra scenes and everything, like you know, from the whole of his like virtual producership of the show. Thank God he was a hoarder, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like all of us. 
Yeah, that's it. He <laughs> oh, said he, just said it was his pension, didn't he? That was the uh, that was the idea of uh, of grabbing grabbing everything, taking it home. Yeah, and and he's uh, thank goodness for his uh, friend as well, isn't it, Dan Stephen Cranford? That yeah, he's, he, through his stuff, that thank God for him as well. Yeah, I read yeah. a thing in Dot T magazine that he's he's. His um, toolbox at home is the orange one from. Oh, which story was it from the Peter Dave's uh, from the Visitation? Oh right. <laughs> yeah, oh, he was just right. uh, J and T gave it to him one day, and he still got it as his toolbox. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I guess the other big feature on here is the the writers' room, um, which again I think are another great highlight for these sets and. Uh, we're lucky that we've we've still got all the writers for season twenty six that could participate in this one. Yeah, and I think Andrew Cartmel's like a, a great kind of like kind of like chair because obviously him being the script editor at the time, um, you know, it gives everyone a real good chance to like you know um, speak on that. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than the um, the writers' room for is it season eighteen with Christopher Bidmead, who's I always feel has got a bit of a disappears off his own um, backside a little bit sometimes yeah <laughs> yeah they, this um, it was really nice like seeing them and listening to them talk all together and um, I really like Andrew Cartmel I went to one uh, Who 77 did um, who were this Dot Who group they did this uh, event in Leeds and he's he's, he's a great raconteur in, in a kind of a quiet way in that mm. he's really knowledgeable, he's really funny and he knows his subjects as well. So it's always lovely listening to him and he in, he just comes across as a really generous person. So I can imagine what a joy it was to work with him as a writer and script editor. And again, you know, talking about the contribution of John Nathan Turner, we can't underestimate just how much Andrew Cartmel like uh, contribute towards uh, twenty season twenty five and mm-hmm. twenty six like with his you know taking that influence from like two thousand AD comics and I like, know mm-hmm. stuff that Alan Moore had written and kind of like you know passing you know stuff like the Ballad of Halo Jones to r- prospective writers and saying like well read that and that's something that's the kind of style of story that I want you to write for Doctor Who that's where my Kind of like vision is going, and you know you can see that in obviously the stories that they then made. He was the fresh young blood that was needed. He gave it yeah. the kick up the arse that it needed, really, wasn't he? So he yeah. was, and and yeah. you know people say John Nathan Turner wasn't very good with story and stuff, but that's usually what Eric Sayward says a lot. Yeah. Uh, and again, he sometimes is a bit overly critical of John Nathan Turner, but I think. John Nathan Turner knew when to let his script editor take the reins and, and run with something. And the perfect example is Ghostlight, which originally was, uh, you know, supposed to be uh, Longbarrow, wasn't it? Mm. Um, but he vetoed that and said, "No, that's going to give too much information away about the Doctor's origin. So why don't we reshape the story and you make it about Ace instead?" Yeah, he. Um, I think it's. I think this is the uh, again another tragedy of J and T dying so early is that he's no longer around to defend himself and to say, well, actually, my thinking behind it was this, and because we all do so dissect it everything so minutely and 
pour over it and time again. He's no longer around to to answer our questions, basically. So it's it's all down to um, the people who were there at the time. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think he, giving uh, like Andrew Cartmel the the space that he he did give him to to, to change the show so much. I think he de- definitely deserves plaudits for. Um, and it seems like Cartmel was was kind of savvy enough as well to know, uh, like the story about JNT suddenly deciding that they couldn't put vampires in the Curse of Fenric. Um, yeah. They can't remember that stage knew JNT well enough, um, I guess not to maybe argue with him in the way that Eric Saywood might have, um, but just to change, you know, create a new word, uh, hemovores, uh, you know, between yeah. him and Ian Briggs and, uh, and, and, and change it that way, uh, which I, I think only makes it better as well. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And and wasn't Andrew Cartmel really young at the time? He was only in his twenties. Yeah, I think, so. I think he was only about twenty four, twenty five at the time. Yeah, yeah. There's no way I would have been mature enough to have that job at twenty four. No, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. No, I think all the all those season twenty six writers were quite young when they were working on it, like kind of early to mid twenties, mostly, weren't they? Yeah, um, yeah, and. Um, and look at Rona Monroe. She's 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 gone on to absolutely amazing things. Like um, I went to the Edinburgh Festival on this course um, in the mid nineties, and she'd written this absolutely amazing film. And and I went and I was able to go and see it. I mean, she wasn't there or anything, but it was we we got this screening of it, and it was and I thought, great, it's going to be a dot two thing, and it was it was the most heartrending thing, like full of. You know, it was it was the most unlike Doctor Who thing that I'd ever seen, but it was just absolutely written uh, absolutely wonderfully, and I just thought it's so nice to see immediately afterwards what writers have done and gone on to do as well. It's um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, every single writer is of that of that season is just so strong, and their stories are so strong as well. And I know Ben Aronovich doesn't like Battlefield, but I still bloody love it. Yeah, I love it as well. It's like, it's well, well it got slated at the time, didn't it? But I, when I got this box set, you know, I watched it again. And you know what? It's a cracking little story. I think it only suffers, really, because it's like it's his, it's his difficult second album, in a yeah. word, isn't it? Mm. It's, it follows on from Remembrance of the Daleks, which is so good, and an ultimate like, instant classic that I think... At the time, people were just like, as in, you know, just so a bit disappointed with that it wasn't Remembrance of the Daleks again. Mm. How do you follow Remembrance of the Daleks yeah. anyway? <laughs> That's the trouble, isn't it? Uh, but it's it's just as packed with like, with ideas and things. Uh, it's um, it, it's let down a little bit visually, and I, it wasn't it originally going to be a three parter, and then you had to extend it to a four parter. I think so. Yeah, um, and and the kind of story goes. He, he didn't actually kind of just take it all, like work it all back from from the beginning. He, he kind of moved things around and stretched it out. So he's, he's not quite happy with the structure, I think. Um, yeah, and I think he, he admits himself, isn't he, that it takes too long for the Brigadier to actually like get into the story. Yeah, you know, he seems to spend like um, it isn't two episodes, but he seems to spend like a lot of time in that helicopter trying yeah. to get to the actual uh, into the uh, the story. It was his Megloss moment where the, the Doctor of Romana, I think it's Megloss I'm thinking of, where the Doctor of Romana spent ages trying to get to a planet 
and there's all these natives doing what they're doing and it's just like come on get into the story (laughs) (laughs) so i think they originally wanted graham harper to direct this as well and it it makes you wonder what difference that would have made in, in terms of its popularity um you know having somebody who's that adept at directing action yeah, because I think Battlefield is probably the only one of the stories out in the season that where the budget is not showing as much on screen mm. and perhaps the story's a little bit too ambitious. So I think somebody like Graham Harper would have been really good at perhaps like utilising the visuals a bit better. Yeah. Yeah. But what a fantastic idea as well that there's a, a future potential Doctor who's Merlin and um, all that great stuff where Anselin just recognises him, recognises him just by his manner immediately. Um, I love all that stuff. And can we just say decades before? It, you know, like everybody's yeah, all, all the the latest Doctor Who has had kind of potential alternative Doctors or future Doctors or past Doctors done decades ago. Battlefield mm-hmm. did it in the eighties. And yeah. if you remember in the Target novel uh, by Mark Clark, the future version of the Doctor who was Merlin was Ginger. Oh, oh I didn't yeah, remember that. Right. I've always wondered if Russell T Davies put that joke in the Christmas Invasion because of that. <gasps> right, like he's waiting to be Ginger because he knows that's when he'll become Merlin. He'll be Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd completely forgotten that. <laughs> yeah. What did you all think of survival? I love that as well. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, um, watching it in today's light, like, it's amazing how much of a bridge it is into Russell T. Davis's version of Doctor Who, like set like, on the estates mm-hmm. and set like modern day. Um, you know, utilising like modern day elements and stuff. Um, it's almost as if you could go from survival, you know, and go straight into roads, and you mm. kind of like almost seamless in a way. It's. Um, I, I think. I think you're completely right there, and it's. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? That even after what 15, 16 years, or uh, however long it was off the air. And then it just kind of, in a way, picks up where it left off. Mm. It, and that shows what what a damn good job they were doing in season 26. Yeah. I remember when I got the VHS, I was a bit older than, than the first time I watched it, being really surprised at how fake the kitlings look when, when they use the animatronic <laughs> ones. Because yeah. I hadn't known, when I was eight or nine or whatever watching that, I had not picked up on that at all. Because you just accept things as a kid, really, don't you? You don't sort of... You don't see shoddy effects. You just sort of uh, yeah, accept yeah. the the fiction that's presented to you. I remember watching the VHS, thinking, surely they, they didn't look that ropey when I watched it before. Well, this is the thing because it's all all this. Um, when I think of season twenty six now, it's like I do it with two minds. It's as I watched it as a kid without any of the analysis. We're just loving it and that theme tune and going somewhere new and and mm. all. Uh, uh, knights from an alternative dimension firing at each other in the near future and, and spooky ladies in, in Victorian houses and then on with the other mind I've got the analysis and everything like that because you don't pick up on that stuff when you're a kid do you? you just love it for what it is yeah, and uh, Ronan Monroe was uh, obviously confirmed and it's mentioned in the Sophie Aldred Matthew Sweet interview isn't it that um, she 
completely intended that lesbian subtext between um, Cara and Ace, which, mm. you know, me watching as a 16-year-old in 1989, please went over my head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I must admit, in subsequent years, I was really, you know, it's, uh, I was really surprised that in the new adventures that followed this, that it wouldn't, that she didn't turn out to be gay. Um, because looking back, you know, you can completely see where, if, if it had have happened, where, you know, like where it would have come from. But I was very surprised that um, she, she didn't turn out to be gay, to be honest. Yeah. And the story also comes in for a lot of criticism because of the cheetah people. But I think they're a brilliant design. I think, you know, that's one thing this season has got. It's got brilliant designs. You've got the Destroyer in mm. Battlefield. You've got the Husks in Ghostlight. You've got the Hemovores in Benrick and the Cheetah people, which are like kind of like the cat version of Planet of the Apes, the Doctor Who. And I, I, I love them. I, I thought they were brilliant. I, I love them too. Yeah, they, they, they are a good design. And I know it's, and sometimes I do wonder if like, um, if it's, like a criticism from what the writer intended them to be or from what they thought, you know, like, oh, that department could have done better or that person could have done better. But, um, you know, it's like when I was watching it, I thought they were scary. They were, they, they said they were cheetah people. They looked like cheetah people. So therefore, to me, as a kid watching it, they were cheetah people and they were they, they could bloody well kill you. You know, they killed yeah. the milkman. There's you know. a psychological <laughs> element to it as well in the being taken over and, and Ace's eyes changing and the, the people getting the fangs and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's, it's the, like you say, there's the, the scare of them being monsters and, and having the claws, but uh, that kind of insidious taking, taking people over as well is, is creepy. I do find yeah. it a little bit implausible, though, that Midge finds the time to go to Topshop to buy a new suit for a chosen takes over the rest of the uh, group. <laughs> yeah. It's a sharp suit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for 1989, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. I think, again, you get that sense again from the writer's room. Um, almost like it is now, I think, uh, under Chibnall, is that the idea of the, the writers being a bit more collaborative than they are on other seasons. Um, so, you know, they're all thinking along the same lines, like the, the really heavy focus on Ace from, uh, you know, being about her mum in, in The Curse of Fenric and then her childhood trauma in, in Ghostlight to, uh, you know, survival, where it's, you know, it's, it's she's really the focus of it, isn't it? Yeah, uh, she goes home to Perryvale, doesn't she? You know, where she'd, like, like left years before. That's there, it. there are proper threads running throughout the whole season. Mm. Uh, it's, I mean, how lovely is that? And it's, and it fits well, as you've said, it fits well in with the uh, with the modern series as well. And that's, it was always heading that way. It, now we know in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, like uh, you know the Bad Wolf story arc from uh, you know two thousand five series one. You know, it's it's like almost if Russell T Davies took kind of like saw what the show was morphing into and thought right I'm going to pick up the baton there and do and morph it into my version of Doctor Who by using those themes that the show was starting to develop more it's nice weighty stuff as well isn't it it's you've got evolution and the the thread that especially in in Battlefield and Survival about um, you know the Doctor being a pacifist and trying to avoid the conflict you know the, uh, the there will be no battle here and 
uh, if we fight like animals and all that kind of stuff, it, it really suits Sylvester McCoy's Doctor, and it's, a, it's again, it's a nice through line in it. As a kid, I always liked, uh, I liked that he was um, quite manipulative, mm. um, and that he was quite, he did have his dark side, and I, re- I remember picking up on that from um, Remembrance of the Daleks onwards, because I absolutely loved what I loved Remembrance of the Daleks, and I cannot wait until they bring out the season 25 box set. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, I remember p- picking up on that, and that he was, you know, like that he was kind of using Ace in a way. Um, although, looking back on it now, he's actually a bit of a git to her. He's a bit horrible yeah. to her at times. Um, you know, it's like, a, I know it's a, his own alien way of showing kindness in a way, but... Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's not always the best of friend to her. But it's good how the new adventures then like kind of like, took that up as story thread and then eventually had like Ace leaving the Doctor in, in you know, where she really fell out with him, didn't she? Like over yeah. the course of a series of books. Um, I think it started with Love and War, didn't it, by Paul Cornell, where she like, like saw him for how her eyes were opened really of, of how manipulative he was and then she type, you know decided to like leave completely yeah 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 absolutely yeah I must give that a reread at some point there's a really good big finish adaptation of it as well yeah yeah uh, that, that's well worth uh, the money as well yeah um, I think because yeah, he's that manipulative thing and I'm always surprised re-watching the stories how much he uses kind of hypnotism type um manipulation of people i know it's um it's a scene that that's cut from silver nemesis but when he escapes from the security people at, at windsor castle uh and he um it's because i'm really used to the vhs one because i watched it again over and over and over again that i'm always surprised when it's not on the dvd when he puts the glasses on like um like the war games guys and says uh, you know you will let me go and he escapes oh, that yeah. way and then in battlefield the um he gets the uh, the landlord and and the archaeologist to leave, doesn't he, with a little bit of hypnotism, and then in survival, it's the uh, the power with of the sergeant, thing. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, he uses that quite often. It's not something you immediately think of, but there are a lot of instances of it um, as you watch them through. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, and this latest season that's been on been on television as well, and it's uh, all the way through. I was thinking of I was thinking of his doctor saying that he was more than just a Time Lord, and I know that's more season 25, but it kind of goes into season 26, and he's, like, mm. bigger than that. And it's just made me think, like, in the in-universe kind of thing, was he starting to think, oh, actually, you know, am I more than a Time Lord? And then, of course, gets gone down in San Francisco, gets all about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that stuff would fit with the with the other, I guess, as well, if, uh, you know, this... Um, yeah. The, the character yeah, there, awesome. the, the yeah. dawn of, of Time Lord civilization. So. It, it really would. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think Chris Chibnall is, like, probably thinking more along these lines than, than ever before. Yeah. Um, He's a big yeah. 80s, uh, 80s Doctor Who guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. No. <laughs> He's not a fan of Pip and Jane Baker, though, sadly. No. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. That's true, yeah. Pity they couldn't have got him on the sofa for that. That would have been... <laughs> or behind the sofa, rather. Well, what did you all think of the trailer? Because that, that gave me goosebumps and made me want to cry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was really good. 
Yeah, I, I love that because it was on just shortly, I think, before or like right before the Warp convention, which um, Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred uh, were guests at. Um, so it was all like kind of that was the, like the latest buzz was around that, and um, Sophie Aldred was talking about it about how she read the script and cried um, because it you know it, made, it meant a lot to her and, and you know to to see a bit of the the life that the character had afterwards. And I like the fact that it's. I thought it was a little nod to uh, Russell T. Davis, who said that, you know, the Sarah Jane uh, adventures had continued. Mm. You know, if um, Liz Sladen hadn't sadly passed away, they would have brought Ace back. Yeah. She would have been a businesswoman, like, in a skyscraper. And it's almost as if, like, when they shot that trailer, they had that in mind. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's after all these years, it's lovely to see what the character to see the character like kind of later in life as she is now mm. um and we and it was it does does feel so sad that we never got to see that in the sarah jane adventures and so to, to have even a glimpse is yeah. is utterly lovely and the, the thought that the doctor had come back for her as well yeah. i mean how sweet <laughs> <laughs> that's great and that, that's where her book picks up as well where she's working at the uh the charity and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get this book now. I'm gonna have to buy it now. It's really nice. I've listened to the audio book as well, um, and uh, and that's it's read by Sophie Aldred. So you get oh. a take on um, uh, on the, uh, the the current Tardis crew, which is quite good. Um, her thirteenth Doctor sounds like Daphne from Frasier. Um, which I think is uh, you you get that kind of uh, southerner's idea of what a northern voice is like Uh, Jane Jane Leaves isn't isn't a northern is she in in Fraser no No, she's supposed to be from Manchester is it yeah Yeah. Uh, so yeah yeah, Sophie Aldridge's doctor is very reminiscent of uh, of Daphne Uh, but you you just go with it after a while it's uh, it's great Uh, and she um, another I mean uh, it's not really a big spoiler, but another character in her book is uh, the little girl from Survival. Oh, uh, really? Oh, right. Squeak. Uh, yeah, uh, which is uh, it's a really it's a really nice touch as well. So there's a there's a lot of those type of things that uh, that, that carry on from from this season and uh, uh, and, and her time in the TARDIS. That, that's a, it's kind of really logical, well thought out stuff of where she would be post traveling with the Doctor. Well, she's probably had years to think about where would my character be now. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it even it, it's. Well, I don't, I don't want to say any more about it because it's. Uh, you should read it; it's great. It reminds me of um, you mentioning that. It reminds me of um, way back in the day. Doctor Who magazine used to do short stories called Brief Encounters. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Yes, and I the, that. They did um, the little girl from Remembrance of the Daleks and the Doctor going to see her and about her life after after being part of the battle computer. And, yeah, I remember yeah. that one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a sad story, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah and she had a mental breakdown and stuff, if I remember rightly. Yeah, yeah. They did one with um, Jacob and Lightfoot as well, didn't they, I think, which... Um... Yeah, way before Big Finish did did the series or anything as well, which uh, which showed them uh, having continuing adventures, uh, which was nice. Yeah, Plus, one of the uh, lost spin-offs we that we never got, sadly. Yeah. 
The audios are fantastic, though, aren't they? I, I absolutely love them. They are good, and it is a, obviously it's a shame that Trevor Baxter's like you know uh, no longer with us now. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah. Lucky to have so many series of it, though. Um, I find them just a, a great kind of comfort listen. I think I've, I've returned to them recently, um, making my way back through them. I'm up, I'm up to series six. Uh, well, they've got lovely. they've got great voices, haven't they? I mean, just really listenable to. Yeah. Works brilliantly on audio. Um, I thought I, I, I looked at um, uh, some of the photos as well, and there was a lot of new photos that I hadn't seen before. And uh, and uh, the whole thing uh, becoming the destroyer with uh, Mara Canton. Yeah. Oh, that was brilliant! I mean, what a lovely guy! Yeah, yeah. And what what a great piece of like uh, makeup as well. Mm. Especially on the budget that the show was probably running on at the time, that that is just a superb design, and it's yeah. a shame that we never got like a, a like a character options figure of, of that when they were doing that range. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, great, wasn't it? The um, I've got the Eagle Moss version, and it's oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It, it's got its own little chains and everything. <laughs> yeah, because I think I remember reading somewhere the. Um, that um, Ben Orange, I think, I think, didn't put him in the script very much because he thought the effects wouldn't be up to all that much. Um, so that's why he's in it relatively little. Uh, and obviously, once he saw it, and it's it's amazing looking and animatronic, and he's thinking, ah, oh, I should have given him a bigger part. Yeah. <laughs> but then I think that's why he makes such an impact, and it's such a, like uh, thing because he's not in it as like the the main villain. Yeah. You know, that's Dean Marsh's character. You know, the fact that when the destroyer pops up, it like immediately like just like, wow, look at that. You know, mm. it's a proper, I suppose, you know, if you were younger, a proper behind the sofa moment for when, you know, you saw him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like a ghost in a ghost story. You don't want to see the ghost for too long because that's not scary. It's the rattling of the doorknob and the creak on the creak and the footsteps on the in the hallway and so if you you know like seeing less of the monster is always going to be more because you only catch a glimpse and therefore it's scarier mm. yeah yeah completely agree definitely and Gene Marsh is so brilliant um, like especially facing off with, with Nicholas Courtney's Brigadier um, where, they, where they first meet by the War Memorial uh, yeah. um, that, that's such a great scene a warrior, no less. How yeah. goes the day? It's <laughs> <laughs> great. And then with the brigadier with um, with Mordred as well, it's like, quite frankly, I'm sick of hearing about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's so many great lines in it. <laughs> Are you the best this planet can offer? Mm. I just do what I can. Yeah. <laughs> and and the whole scene where she pays his tab. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and it's it's like she she is a warrior warrior son, so she expects him to get leathered and pull pull him in, and and then she pays his tab by you know like kind of restoring the landlady's size. That blew my mind as a kid. It's a really great character note, isn't it? Yeah, really yeah. It's kind of it proper makes a three D, you know, because mm. it's like she's done this amazing thing by restoring sight, but she's evil, and that. That, I think that was the first time that I realised that baddies could be 3D and that they've got their own sense of justice in their own heads. Because yeah. I know they say, as an actor, when you play a, um, a part, you've got to find something, you've got to find why they think they're right 
or something likable about them. Um, and, you know, and it's and that was the first time I, re- I realised that baddies don't just go around going hee 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 and rubbing yeah. their hands together. <laughs> well, it's the thing, old adage of like, the best villains are the ones who don't actually consider themselves a villain or a, or, a, or evil. They just yeah. think that what they're doing is is right, and you yeah. know they're the best written and best three dimensional villains, you know, rather than the ones who just, like you say, twiddle the mustache and laugh <laughs> <type> manically <laughs> and tie the heroin to the train tracks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because even at the end when uh, she learns that Arthur's actually dead, it's it's, it's quite moving. Mm. Uh, for, you know, to, for it to be the reaction from a villain that's that's trying to blow everyone up with a with a nuclear bomb. Yeah, it's almost like war games, isn't it? And it's like, what, no more battles? And yeah, you know, it's, and they did actually, you know, love each other. And yeah, it's it's the it, it feels like there, there should be, you know, like that the, there's a hell of a lot more to more game than we ever got to see. Mm. The one thing with Battlefield that I've always wondered is. Are they still in prison, Morgan and Mordred, after all this time? <laughs> they just get arrested. Oh, yeah. They just get carted off, and that was it. <laughs> it it's like the deleted scene in Superman 2, where the, you see the Arctic police force march off General Zod and uh, Ursa and Non, and you think, where, where, what prison are you going to put them in? No, that's the, that's the spin-off we want to see is those two in prison, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more like a sitcom, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just uh, give a shout-out to Lee uh, Binding as well for another excellently designed box set? Yeah. Oh, yes. They just yes. get better and better, right? You know, you think the next one that comes along, you just think, oh, he can't surpass himself again. And then the next release is just like even better designed. It's just he's just a, a really talented like artist. He's one talented man, is he not? Mm. And the um, oh, and the menu as well. The yeah, um, the, the console room. Yeah, you get a different one every uh, box set. It's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to the season fourteen uh, menu screens. Ah, of course, yes. it's the secondary control room, isn't it? It is, yeah. Ah, that's oh, lovely. Gorgeous. Yeah. It's yeah, nice. it was really interesting seeing, I, I must admit, I watched it fly around quite a few times yeah. just to, <laughs> to, to see it not dark and to see the the, the console room without the pillars and, and as it as, as it was in battle, that like brief scene in Battlefield. Mm. It was it was really interesting because I, I, I did wonder because... Obviously, I was going to get always going to get season twenty six. McCoy is my doctor. I'm going to get season twenty four and season twenty five. So, but I did wonder how the hell are they going to do this? Is it just going to be like the console with lit handles behind it or what? But no, surpass themselves as ever. And a little uh, Carberry map yeah. on the screen on the console. Uh, fantastic. Every, the attention to detail, every element of the uh, of these releases, fantastic, isn't it? They're, they're just such beautiful objects to, to hold and then the little compartment in the front for the booklet um, the design on the discs themselves they're, they're so lovely I, I can't wait until the full set is there on my shelf uh, in a row 
you, are you buying them, every yeah. every Blu-ray set or are you being yeah. selected? Or? No, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I buying am, them yeah. all. Yeah, I'm, uh... I don't have the money or the space to do everyone, so I'm going to get all the McCoys. Yeah, some of the John Persuies and maybe a Trouson, but that's about it, I think, because I've got the full DVD compliments. <laughs> Yeah, I've got nowhere else to put them. I've only got a little house. It's, it's difficult, <laughs> isn't it? It's um, you you've got like an urge to to be a completist because I well, I mean, the other people that have listened to this will know. I didn't buy the season twelve one because I didn't realise it was going to sell out. So now that I managed to grab that on the re-release, um, <gasps> I uh, I think right, I'm, I'm going to get them all because I, I'll I'll regret it if I don't. <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of the re-release, Mark, did you get the right printed discs in yours, or were you- did, did yours have the John Pertwee printed discs on They've them? got John Pertwee printed on them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> for the season 12 content. Yeah, I, I panicked when I first opened them. Uh, and then I put them in, and I've never been more glad to hear Tom Baker's voice. Uh, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't believe that when I saw that hit Twitter, and then people started yeah. receiving the box sets, and they were the wrong... Yeah, I nearly lost my shit. I was like, I've been waiting <laughs> two years for this to be re-released. And I thought, if this is actually season 10 and everywhere sold out of it. So I got onto Amazon um, on a web chat and they said, uh, well, we'll give you a refund. And I was like, I don't want a refund. I want, <laughs> I want the right thing. <laughs> yeah. You don't um, understand. And they said, we'll give you a refund. You can reorder it. And I'm like, no, I can't reorder it. <laughs> Where am I going to reorder it from? Uh, so in the end, they said, well, you can keep the discs and we'll still give you a refund. And I was like, oh, well, fair enough then, because they do actually have the right content on them. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that was um, that was quite generous of them. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you never know. That might be a collector's item in years to come. You know, like the two ends, uh, two armed Davros from Darpol. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the five sided console. You never know. Yeah, I hope you uh, used your refund to order the season fourteen box set straight away. I I ordered that long ago, as soon as it became available. I don't I don't take any chances these days. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope season 25 is going to be all right. I'm crossing my fingers here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to know what the release schedule is. I, I really want, I'm really hoping for the VHS Silver Nemesis cut for season 25. Yeah. And hopefully they can get the rights to that documentary that, that came with the VHS. Yes, yes. Because yeah. uh, I watched that so many times when I was a kid. I don't still have the VHS. Um, but yeah, well, it was sort of a nemesis. Um, it's quite jarring now that those those little bits are missing uh, when you watch it that were in that extended uh, VHS cut, isn't it? That, that was a sure. weird omission. Mm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure with them including the VHS cuts on this uh, box set that will get finally the uh, extended version of Silver Nemesis when it's yeah. uh, due. Yeah, can't yeah. have enough Silver Nemesis for me. Oh, it's it's I I, I love it. I do as well. <laughs> I love <yeah>. that story. <laughs> um, I, I, I was a guest on somebody's podcast a couple of months ago, defending it. I was a bit of a lone voice, I'm afraid, but, but I, think, <laughs> I think it's great. You're in good company here. Yeah, <laughs> every story's got its fan. Yeah, it does. It does. Even time lash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and this, yeah, because I think uh, season twenty six. I was having a look the other day. It's sold out again already, hasn't it? 
has it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I like... think they they virtually as soon as they're out, they're kind of like they're gone. Then, mm. yeah, yeah. Uh... I as soon as like the second I hear that something is coming at X date, I pre-order. Yeah, they um... and I just pray that I'll have the money in my account. Yeah, <laughs> when it's eventually released. But this this one seems to have sold out particularly quickly compared to some of the others. I think. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I mean, once I've got it, I don't really pay that much attention. I was just sort of curious uh, the other day. I think yeah, whether it's still available, and um, yeah, like I checked out Zoom and HMV and Amazon, and they're all sold out. Although I think if you look on most of the uh, websites, I think season fourteen is now showing a sold out, and it's not even been released yet. Oh wow! Oh well, that, that is quicker than <laughs> season twenty. Yeah. Good God! Wow. So, that just makes me fearful about get all the McCoys. Yeah, it's a it's a boom industry, isn't it? A boom it's industry. Boom industry. Oh dear! <laughs> dear, oh dear! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, where can our listeners find you guys on Twitter? I'm uh, Uncle Beard1978 on Twitter. I'm Django Mac72 on Twitter. And I'm Quark McMalice on Twitter. Uh, you can follow the podcast at trap1 underscore, and you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Thank you very much for joining me, guys. That was brilliant. Cheers. Absolute pleasure as always. Thank you, and thanks for listening at home. Goodbye.